Hi, this is Jonah Gray. Welcome to Post Studio Visit, a podcast produced under the auspices of the Or Gallery in Vancouver, BC, Canada, by me, the Or Gallery's curator of discursive projects. The whole idea behind this show was that I would take you along on interviews with contemporary artists and sometimes writers or curators or critics and talk about the projects they're currently working on. Except, of course, that things are never that simple. Immediately as I began canvassing potential interviewees, I realized that almost no one that I wanted to interview had an actual studio. Obviously, that spoiled the title that I had in mind for the show, which was Studio Visit. Still, the field recording aspect of the show was important. So I decided that I should instead reflect the displacement of artists from studios for whatever reason, be it by choice or more likely, I suspect, by being squeezed out due to high rents. And that I would follow artists to the other places that they worked, in their apartments or at coffee shops or what have you. The interviews that follow are a record of those conversations. Over the balance of my term here at The Oar, I'm going to try to release episodes fairly regularly, so keep this page bookmarked or subscribe to the post-studio visit feed or at least keep your eye out on Twitter and Facebook. Of course, if you have any suggestions to make the show better, of artists to interview or questions you'd like me to ask, please don't hesitate to get a hold of me, either on Twitter, I'm at Jonah underscore Gray, the gallery's Twitter, at Or Gallery, or the old-fashioned way by email, where I can be reached at discursive at orgallery.org. As a side note, another project I recently undertook at Or was a series of talks entitled Curating the Self, including participants from art history, visual art, anthropology, and contemporary art curating. And it drew on connections between art, curating, the construction of identities, and the therapeutic. Over the ensuing weeks, I will be posting videos of those talks on the Or Gallery Vimeo stream, so there will be some respite from what I have found out through these recordings is my incredibly nasal voice. Anyway, without any further ado, here's my first interview, one of two, as it turns out, about puppet shows, with writer, curator, and now playwright, Bopa Chai. We recorded this in December, so it doesn't come up in our conversation, but this week Bopa was named as the new director of Artspeak Gallery, so my congratulations to Bopa. Chai is originally from New Zealand, where she studied anthropology and history before getting an MA in art history from the University of Auckland. Since 2009, she has worked at After All Journal in London and in Vancouver at the 221A Artist Run Centre and at Emily Carr University. For our visit, Chai kindly hosted me in her apartment in Mount Pleasant. When I arrived, she had several browser tabs open on her laptop for me to check out. One of the first projects of hers that we talk about then was Lived Space, a kind of multi-platform discursive project that Chai continues to collaborate on with Sydney Hart. I asked her to tell me more about it. Um, Little Space started as... Um, well, basically it started because of our geographical distance, where I was living in New Zealand and Sid was living in London, UK, and prior to that we had been having these conversations with a lot of our friends in London, um, a lot of who a lot of people who were being like either displaced um, because of the cost of living in London, but also it was at around 2010 where it's just difficult to live in London. 
Um, so we had been thinking about, particularly in East London, where gentrification was really happening quite quickly, within the space of two years or so. It, of course, it's been ongoing. But um, there are also a lot of austerity protests, and we were part of a lot of rallies that were questioning... Um, rallies and protests that were questioning um, immaterial labour, particularly in London in regards to the arts, contemporary arts and cultural production and the people who worked in those kinds of organisations and what it meant to be doing, um, like, engaging in free labour in a city that was basically... None of us could really afford to live there. Um, So the project started... That was the kind of birth of the project where we'd be having all these discussions and thinking about geography, Marxist geography, I guess. Um, When I say that, I'm thinking about how... um, how capital affects the way we move in the built environment. Um, But the mandate that we came up with, because we decided that we had to have a mandate, something to like kind of combine all our thoughts and what we were thinking, and we were reading Henri Lafave, The Production of Space at the time. Um, So our kind of one-line mandate was, Live Space is a research and publishing organization investigating the social production of space in relation to modern and contemporary cultural production. Um, And what we were doing was we wanted to compile a bunch of articles that we'd written or thoughts that we'd had. um, And so we developed this kind of broadsheet publication. That was the first project. And then we also engaged in a couple of residencies too. So the first issue we produced... um, kind of came out of a residency that we did at an artist-run centre in Dunedin in New Zealand called Rice and Beans. And um, what we decided to do was look at the kind of symbols of uh, micronations, um, thinking about the need and desire for people to kind of, in, way, in a way, enact like symbols of um, the state whilst... Or, simultaneously denying the state in which they live. So we decided to turn the turn into or um, think about the space of rice and beans as a micronation and thinking about micronations in parallel or in relation to artist-run centres and the way they operate um, outside of the market in a way. So they kind of exist in this way that allows them to kind of have the door open but keep it closed at the same time. So at once it's accessible, but also it gives them... There's the space, they create a space for themselves to, like, think about or consider things or ideas that cannot be monetized or commodified in some ways. I hope, I think, I'd like to think. (laughs) Um, So we were looking at that parallel between artist-run centers and micronations and what that means. What does it mean to maintain this space of agency to to ensure like a space of cultural production? Um, so we turned rice and beans into I think we called it 
I'm forgetting now. It wasn't even that long ago. I think we called it the Republic of Rice and Beans. <laughs> Sounds like is, a delicious republic. <laughs> it's just like cheap eats, right? That's what we specialized in. Um, and so we ran a few events through the space and we kind of made this flag, which had a single rice and a single bean on it. <laughs> and um, also rice and beans is a kind of play on this idea of austerity or lack of money small budget um so we had a reading room we had a collection of articles thinking about sovereignty um placemaking and um we had film screenings so it was basically like an embassy with a series of events Hmm. so that was the first issue came out of that um and we were looking at borders a lot of a lot about borders um and then you guys responded to that in textual form we decided to produce a publication because we were having all these events that a lot of the people who had um been contributing to this conversation so that we could include them as well so it was basically a way to create a community through print which i think is a lot of what publishing achieves. Um, it's like consolidating ideas and bringing together people's different opinions. Also, we want to think about the relationship between publishing and the curatorial space and writing and how they all come together to... Um, how all our voices could be... Uh, Consolidated in one place because a lot of a lot of us are in different countries. Like Sid was in the UK, I was in New Zealand. Our friend Noah was in he was between places because he was having visa issues. Our friend Ron, who runs a publication called White Fungus, was in Taiwan. So it was kind of a nice way. It was also an excuse for us just to keep speaking about these ideas. I like um, that. Yeah. So in some ways, we like to think of publishing as a kind of curatorial. Well, we, we see the processes of editing and the curatorial processes being quite similar. Um, so, yeah. And it's called Issue Zero. It's called Issue Zero. <laughs> I can't quite remember why we decided that. But also there's like an article by our friend Aisha Hamid, who lives in London and teaches at Goldsmiths, called On Coastlands, Border Crossings and Natural History. And she speaks about the um, refugee camps in Calais, um, which I think is still relevant sure, and complicated. More, even more almost. Yeah, incredibly complicated. So, yeah. So that was issue zero. Issue zero. And issue one? Issue one. Um, so at that point, we had both relocated, Sydney Hart and I had, my collaborator, had relocated to. Um, Vancouver and it was 2012 and at the time Sydney's from Montreal so he has a lot of a big community there who were involved in um, a big community of activists um, who were involved in the student strikes um, and so we were thinking about the idea of strike but particularly the idea of strike in relation to education. Um, the right to education 
what it means to be what it means to be provided the opportunity to cheap education or cheapish what in fact I think it should be free in many ways I like how you've characterized lived space as kind of a, a vehicle for connecting you um, to different collaborators in different countries. But I'm curious, too, how did you... You must have had some physical connection at some point or other. You were in the same space as... Um, same physical space as these people. How, what occasion that sort of friendship and connection between, between all of you? I think friendship is really key, actually. And maybe it's something that I don't consider or think about enough in terms of, like what the impact of friendship has on one's practice. I think quite often it's not something I really spend enough time thinking about, even though it seems really obvious. Um, but in terms of live space, um, we wanted to maintain these connections because there was like a... I think we'd experienced a solidarity amongst us at some point in our life. Um, because the people who contribute to live space are people that we've met at different moments of our life, not just recent or it wasn't just in one school or one community. It's like multiple communities, multiple events, multiple educational institutions or protests or rallies or whatever. Um, and I think in some ways those connections were maintained through a feeling of possibly feeling alienated from certain communities or a certain context. Um, for example, living in London and not being able to afford a studio or really even afford like the necessities of basic housing or some of us who are working in internships that didn't pay any money which is basically in some ways slavery <laughs> <laughs> to, put it, to put it lightly um, so these are a lot of the things that we were thinking about and I think when Sid and I were having these conversations with each other we wanted to we wanted to ensure that all the voices that were informing what we were thinking about were also present if we were producing a publication or an exhibition or a project. We wanted to make sure that the wider community was also um, accounted for. You're working on a play right now. Tell me a little bit about it. Um, the play is... I, the tentative title is... For Whom Can We Speak? And it's about women workers in a garment factory set in, today, contemporary Cambodia. Um, and the title is For Whom We Can Speak because in some ways it's a question to myself. Like, who am I to be writing speculatively writing about the experience of women working in a garment factory in a developing country in which I don't live or have any experience in. 
uh, aside from, you know, I read it, everything through the news or through like stories, people tell me conversations. So I don't actually have any experience myself. For whom can we speak? Um, it's also riffing off this text by Gayatri Spivak called Who Claims Alterity? And it questions the role of of who can write history, who can, how we can write alternative histories, and who can speak for who. And she speaks about this role of the native informant, who is a person, so I guess in this case, myself, <laughs> um, a Cambodian woman who is addressing contemporary Cambodian issues, um, but why my voice is more relevant than anybody else's. And in thinking about that, she speaks about class and gender and race. Um, who am I, a woman from a middle-class background, to speak about the experiences of Cambodian women from a working-class background? So that's like a question to myself, just thinking about writing this play. Another question is, which is how the whole project started, was a, in some ways a question for Elensi Su. Why is she writing a story about a male monarch authority figure who's played such a huge role in Cambodian history and the lead-up to the Civil War? From 1975 onwards, frame um, that for us. Just um, you're, you're the play is a response to, or it's building on, it's riffing off of this play by Ellen Sisu. G- give us a rundown about that. Um, the play by Ellen Sisu that I'm, I started off adapting, but then I decided not to for various reasons. It's called The Terrible But Unfinished Story of Narodom Sihanouk, King of Cambodia. And it's this epic play where Narodom Sihanouk is the main character. And the play, in a lot of ways, deconstructs his character through his social and political and cultural relationships with different people and communities. So in a sense, what she's doing is looking at a history of Cambodia through this one figure. And a lot of what I was questioning earlier was because I've been reading a lot of her other texts. I'd never read her plays before, and and then I came across this, and I thought, oh, what is this? This looks totally random. But in fact, it explains a lot of her own practice of writing. So in her practice of writing... She is particularly looking at the female subject and how the female subject is developed through identifying or through difference. And what's really interesting about the play is she deconstructs this character. And I think that also the form of the play is really conducive to like a deconstruction of one particular person and revealing certain weaknesses and vulnerabilities. 
and that it happens in acts and parts and so it's like it's basically different character studies act one act two act three um so the play looks at that and is that because then each time it restarts it can come from a different perspective or yes so like in act two there's a conversation between the king his advisor i think his wife and um a North Korean representative, which I find so fascinating. And so you start to see a kind of political power play in this conversation and his different interests and the way he liaises between foreign interests and local interests and and the way she kind of frames Nardum Sinok as 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 a a peacekeeper. He's trying to like maintain the peace. Um, a lot of people dispute that Um, but also I think I I was really fascinated by this play because I was questioning her role as a French woman who writes about an old French colony and decides to focus on a male figure when so often she writes about female difference in the language used to kind of produce this female subjectivity but just like having this discussion with you because a lot of this is like so much just so much in my head is it's kind of brilliant and that she does this well i had so many questions about it but in some ways it's like the contrast between a male figure of authority and the way power is constructed and the way that filters down um, which is so interesting to me. But you've ended up kind of, you've stepped aside or you're, you're working in something in parallel then with that. Do you, tell me about, tell me about your project and how you've, how you've, um, you know, where you've jumped off from this play and, and started, started something different. At first I was writing a direct adaptation of this to be performed as a shadow puppet theatre. But then I decided that I wanted to... I wanted to make it... relevant. Like, I didn't think writing about the King of Cambodia was relevant. And I wanted to think about the people... I wanted to think about women because women in developing countries get a really bad deal in a lot of ways. (laughs) Not just there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, So I wanted to focus on that. And a lot of the news that I read from Cambodia, I don't know if it's like my filter or my feed, is uh, about the unions there and the labor laws. So I think that kind of skews my thinking or approach to certain things. And that seems like an important thing that you've chosen to instead of instead of make a play in the sense of, you know, actors on the stage that it's you're using a you're using a traditional form. The shadow play. 
What's important about about using that that form? I think it's important because so in 1975 when the Khmer Rouge took over, a lot of the cultural producers and academics or anybody who would question the regime, they were quickly dealt to by being eliminated. Um, So I wanted to think about what happened to those forms of narrative or storytelling. What happened to those forms from 1975 to 1989. And I wanted to think about how people were using them now and how they had changed, if they had changed, or how these cultural forms um, kind of rejuvenated a kind of cultural history in some ways. I wanted to think about the role of like the classical ballet, shadow puppet theatre, the gamelan, the music, and how people, how it was simultaneously nostalgic and also a way to look forward. So I thought the shadow puppet would be would be an interesting to way, a way to look at it. Also in thinking about not having actors, I wanted, I wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable with putting bodies at the forefront. I wanted bodies to be slightly obscured, just to kind of think about the inaccessibility to certain histories or information or affect, um, because I myself feel quite distanced from these forms, and I only know about it through my own research. So I didn't want to, I kind of wanted to keep it obscured. Mm -hmm. And so the screen, there's a parallel or an analog between the screen in the shadow puppet play and maybe your computer screen (laughs) where you're reading here. Is that going too far? (laughs) No, I don't think it's going too far at all. I think I spend about 18 hours in front of this thing. So it's the way I think. I think about screens. (laughs) Um, yeah I also wanted to think about the screen as a page so a page paper, the material um, in regards to like the way history is constructed or written like a lot of this play I think is me thinking about who writes historical narratives is that is it about translating experience? Is that the kind of like is that a central problematic? Is that something because it seems like there's something about translation, but that you also there between um, between these different kind of problematics that you've described. I just kind of feel like there's a desire to have, that you kind of want to on one hand broach those problematics and explore the. Um, question of um of art basically all of these sort of like problematic issues you kind of want to get in them and get messy but then you also want to hold up the the problems themselves and that kind of very inaccessibility 
guess. Exactly. Is that fair? Yeah. It's totally fair. I think you've like picked on, up on that quite well. It's been really hard for me to like even think about that, but I think this kind of distance and feeling apprehensive is also a lot of it is to do with my own linguistic and cultural like estrangement or displacement in a way because I I can speak Cambodian but I can't like write or read so I'm kind of like illiterate right um, and that's your your own family background is yeah, Cambodian is, yeah so I think that plays into that a lot as well um, but also when I when I go to Cambodia there's this there's like a sense of I feel I feel displaced, but I also feel a huge amount of it's like guilt and responsibility or something. Hmm. Well, and maybe that's your question of for whom can we speak is that's that fundamental thing. I feel like so much within art, the discourse around identity politics is like. <clears throat> you know, those kind of shifting things about appropriation will like, oh, you can't speak about that because you don't, your identity doesn't sort of like, that's not part of your identity. But then on the other hand, um, there is, that can be so reductive in an, in the sort of like reverse direction too, where it's like, oh, as somebody of a Cambodian background, then like, does that give you access to all forms of experience of people who have, you know, like, like with a shared background? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're totally right. It's, it's like a difficult question. I also grew up in New Zealand, which has like another set of <laughs> identity politics going on. Is like, that parallel? Do you think they're parallel to in Canada? I feel like in our, in our previous conversation that that sort of came up. There is some kind of there are some really interesting parallels as like British colonies. But what? What? How do you how do you see it? I don't. I've never been to New Zealand. I think there are a lot of parallels in that you're really made to be aware of the land that the land, your surroundings, the geography around you. And I think that's really important, right? Acknowledging, like, the history or the histories. I always say history, but I think we should say histories (laughs) because there are so many different voices. Um, I want to ask you about that, too, about your background in New Zealand because... You have, um, in terms of your academic background, art history, but also um, you worked at the Human Rights Commission in New Zealand. Yeah, I worked at the Human Rights Commission. It was like a very, very brief contract. And it was at a time where I was, I think it was like a summer job kind of thing. But in my postgraduate studies, I was... It was art history, and and a lot of what I was looking at was post-colonial theory in relation to contemporary visual arts, but also forms of cross-cultural representation. And then in history, I was looking at a lot of um, labor union politics. 
um, and histories in New Zealand. So I was working at the Human Rights Commission just as a library assistant, actually, but by default I kind of became this research assistant for the lawyers and the policy makers and everybody else who worked there. And um, that kind of provided me with a different approach to thinking about culture and the policies that kind of define the way we think about culture or the way that we should think about culture as defined by a certain group of people. And it was this through this legal framework, which I didn't feel particularly comfortable with because a lot of affect or experience or emotion I felt was rendered void. I mean, I was sitting there looking at legal documents and legal through this framework and I, it didn't feel natural to me and I didn't feel comfortable I wanted I wanted access to to experience or affect yeah was has that shaped then we talked about this before about kind of accessing some kind of hybrid thing that's not academic that's not necessarily um, a, a visual arts practice that's not is that has, do you think that kind of influenced that? Yeah I think the, I think that definitely influenced that while I wasn't while I didn't feel particularly comfortable working in that environment through that particular framework um, I also had a lot of respect for the people who worked there they were, they were just working so hard to get certain acts pushed through and I could just see that they were so passionate about these, like, such a corny word, but, you know, they really were. Like, I could really see how much energy, like, the blood, sweat and tears that they were putting into, like, what they were doing. So it wasn't, like, experience and emotion or anything like that was rendered void because that was all present. But I think what came out of it kind of left me feeling a bit cold or um, estranged from the actual experience of pushing through these policies. Um, does that answer the question? Kind of. Well, you wanted something, you wanted something, you wanted to a type of production or to, to work within a type of production that could treat those, let's say, affect, emotions in a different way that could that could like speak to them rather than negate them or or not maybe that's not the right word for it but that could make them be the subject of your reflection mm-hmm. yeah also I wanted I didn't I felt like it was the process was very formalized and uh, I don't feel like I'm comfortable working in that way where there's a very clear objective where a lot of things get cut out. Like the end result is too clean almost, I think, even though the process was not clean at all. And I think I wanted some of that, the messiness or the confusion to be able to, in the in the production of this or leading up to a certain development of a conclusion or objective to be to be revealed in a way. I didn't want to hide it or obscure it. 
And I think also it was just my experience from working there and trying to just, trying to speak to people about what I did and being seen as a suit or like a <laughs> civic civil civic employee. Is that what you call them? Civil servant. Civil servant. That's the one. Yeah. You can be a civil servant in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Well, activists are kind of civil servants, and yeah, you're, you're right. The definition can be. Or very they are boring. civil servants. bit about the music that we have that you've got up in the up in these um, browser windows here so the first one that we listened to was like a 60s psychedelic it's called 60s psychedelic but it's kind of like a love song actually um, with this YouTube clip of like aliens and ancient Egypt and Easter <laughs> Island and you know. There's kind of an amazing sort of constructivist or like kind of like collage aesthetic to the video that's that's actually kind of kind of amazing. It is great. I'd like I'd like to know who made this video actually. So that music was really, really popular. Like they had a big rock and roll kind of scene going on in the sixties and seventies there. In Cambodia. In Cambodia. Um leading up to the Civil War and then a lot of those people were um, assassinated, I guess, because they were like cultural producers and the regime did not want any of those people around. Um, so I wanted to think about... I wanted to think about... 
what happened to those people and what the legacy of this music is. Like people are very nostalgic for it now, but I also want to think about how what happened in the what could have happened, what could have been. So I guess it's like very speculative with that kind of linear, with that kind of like where would that music have gone if these people were still around? So that gap from 1975 to like 1989 like what could have gone on then and then this other piece which is not actually Cambodian but a Thai psychedelic wedding band (laughs) is also very similar to Cambodian wedding bands and I wanted to think about how that music in some ways is a legacy to the music that was developed in the 60s and how that's changed now Um, I guess that's like a huge I've got to listen to like a thousand more records to kind of try and come up with some kind of (laughs) conclusion or thought sure but those are influencing those I, I like the description that you kind of have to me the sense of your process for the writing of the play is on one hand a writing Exercise, you you call that. On another hand, it seems like it's kind of like a chance to kind of like <laughs> meditate over these <laughs> YouTube clips of of psychedelic three music. <laughs> that seems like the best kind of research. It's enjoyable, yeah. <laughs> and I'm kind of I'm I'm wondering, like, do you think that those will play out? Those will play a part. The you know your psychedelic um, trips on YouTube. Your the the music is music a component in the play. Music will be a component in the play. I was thinking at first about um, the gamelan because it's more traditional, whatever traditional is. But I didn't feel like I wanted to use that music when I was thinking about. Um, the narrative that I'm developing about women workers in a garment factory today I wanted to think about other kinds of music and the reason I gravitate so much towards this like Thai psychedelic wedding band is because well I like it I like the music a lot but I think it also like produces this outer body effect if you listen to it loud enough <laughs> where um, it takes you somewhere else which I, I guess a lot of music does that right but it's very I find it to be very visceral and I wanted to think about this feeling the visceral feeling and what it might be like to be a worker in the garment factory suffering um, certain abuses it sounds really dark but I don't know <laughs> it's kind of dark well and that sounds like maybe that's the vehicle that that you were talking about that kind of that problem of translating experience or of if not speaking for it speaking to or speaking with um that that's a vehicle for kind of like for 
is it for empathy or for kind of like sort of like it's not it's not about like understanding but kind of like getting out of yourself yeah it's almost like further it's almost like a vehicle or um, for further alienation or displacement maybe that's it so alienation is displacement to another place again yeah well, psychedelic music is perfect. <laughs> I mean, again, the psychedelic music, maybe that's what the... Yeah, I was also thinking... I mean, it's also just because I really like this, this music. Um, but I was thinking, like, what, did, what do young women in Cambodia, what kind of music do they like listening to? And I think a lot of the music that is really popular is, uh, you know, like Western pop music, but also K-pop. And I was like, what would it... Is this the music that I should be thinking through or with or alongside instead of the psychedelic, nostalgic wedding band music? Maybe. K-pop? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. Maybe uh, kind of a nice ending. <laughs> so, like... Alienation, displacement, K-pop. <laughs> Actually, there's I don't know. There's something about the way you said that, and then you're just like, <laughs> full stop. <laughs> kind of. I think it's nice. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>